Deuteronomy chapter 4. Our sermon text this morning is verses 1 through 8 of Deuteronomy 4. We will then elaborate on this with a reading from the gospel according to Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 20. We begin with Deuteronomy 4, verses 1 through 8. Moses is speaking by the Spirit of God. And he says, Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I am teaching you to perform, so that you may live and go in and take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord has done in the case of Baal Peor, for all the men who followed Baal Peor, the Lord your God has destroyed them from among you. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are alive today, every one of you. See, I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. So keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there? that has a God so near to it, as is the Lord our God, whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? And the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, beginning at verse 13. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. 
For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your law. We thank you for our Savior, who with his life and in his life, the fullness of the years of it and each successive moment kept this law perfectly, that he might become for us an acceptable sacrifice for sinners. Open our eyes to see Jesus. We humbly ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This fourth chapter of Deuteronomy represents an important transition in the book. Chapter 4 bridges all of this redemptive history that we've been reading in the first three chapters, bridges that with the presentation of God's law, which begins, of course, in chapter 5. So it reminds us what all this history of our redemption from bondage in Egypt, what it means. It means that redemption means that we belong properly, body and soul, to him. And so it prepares us carefully and with all due reverence to keep and hear his commandments. So this fourth chapter cements together the first two sections, the first two major sections of our sovereign king's covenant with his people, the historical prologue to the covenant with its legal stipulations. He has purchased us, so we're his. He's brought us out of bondage in order to do not our own thing, not our own good pleasure, but his good pleasure. And chapter 4 is a revealing chapter for us too, because as it holds these two major sections together, the prologue from history and the law, as it holds them together, it also shows us the relationship between God's sovereign grace by which he loves us and sets us apart and calls us with the requirements of his law by which he guides and directs us. Grace and law stand in a relationship to one another that the church of both Testaments, Old Testament and New, has gotten often still gets, very badly wrong, much to the detriment of our gospel mission among the nations. Here's what I mean by that. Are the nations of the world, we've been given this great commission, are the nations of the world drawn irresistibly to our Lord Jesus Christ by a libertine church? that operates under the delusion of cheap grace? Of course not. 
Of course not. A church like that, a church that lives however a jolly well wants to live, a church like that looks too much like them, too much like the world. It can't be distinguished from the lawless world around it. Because it really is no different. A church like that, a church that disregards the law of God, is a ship at sea without captain or course or compass, and it finds itself at the mercy of the wind and waves. A church that disregards God's law simply goes wherever the elements drive it. Wherever the social trends take it, so is the church in the world. If it lacks the dynamic power of the Holy Spirit and the magnetic compass of the law. Lawlessness as a church, lawlessness gets us someplace we don't want to be. And nowhere that we do want to be. Well, then, are the nations of the world drawn to Christ by legalists? Legalists who have these behavioral hang-ups to match the Gentiles? And once again, the answer is no, of course. Such a church looks too much like them, too much like the world. Anyone on the one hand can let it all hang out, and anyone, on the other hand, can churn out all the regulations he wants to. Human regulations. Pagans do very well without our help. But if we, the church, consider our own history, if we understand what our own covenantal history signifies, how he brought us out of Egypt on eagle's wings, then we find ourselves bound from the heart to love him who brought this wondrous deliverance to pass. Consequently, we're bound from the heart to be more reverently disposed toward his law. We're ready to keep it without either adding our own human regulations or trading away what's really there for a licentious world of our own imagining. Our creator, our Redeemer also reigns over us as our king and lawgiver. For all the misunderstandings that exist over law and grace and their relationship, essentially it's very simple. Jesus put it this way. If you love me, keep my commandments First, then, we must love him. Love him. And why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we love him? I mean, look at him. Look at our Lord Jesus Christ. Put your fingers into the nail prints. Thrust your hand into his wounded side. Wounded for you. The sinner, the perishing sinner. Isn't it just natural? Isn't it just 
instinctive for the redeemed heart to love such a wonderful, gracious God as he is who redeemed us by the blood of the God-man, his own dear son. Another man, a better one, died in my place and I'm free. Isn't it instinctive for us to want to follow him? Who could begrudge serving such a gracious king as though serving him, keeping his revealed word, his law, as though keeping that were some kind of intolerable burden? As though he were just another taskmaster like all the taskmasters in the world. The hiker trudging along the the uphill trail. The hiker in the woods, in the mountains somewhere, he's on this trail, he's hot, he's sweaty, he's thirsty, he's bone weary. When he comes across the thundering waterfall that is pouring into a cold, clear mountain lake, that hiker hardly needs to be told what to do. He drops his burden, he dives in for the sheer beauty and pleasure and refreshment of it all. Beloved, the living and true God is that refreshing waterfall to the burdened and bothered sinner. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, says the prophet Isaiah. If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, says the Lord Jesus Christ. He promises refreshment and rest to the weary. His commandments aren't burdensome. If the commandments were burdensome, how could the psalmist and every Christian after him sing, Oh, how I love thy law. It is my study all the day. It's no burden to exercise your weary limbs swimming in such a cold, clear lake as his commandments offer us. It's refreshing. Isn't it more refreshing to live in an ordered world than a world of chaos? It's refreshing. This is how we both glorify and enjoy God. His statutes stimulate the mind and energize the soul. So it's really a pattern that God has demonstrated again and again down through history, all through the scriptures. First, showing grace to deliver us And then following that up by his law to direct us. The relationship between these two is a fundamental issue, friends, that is too important to leave to the professional theologian. Let us begin to think and speak clearly about them, not for our sakes only, but also for these nations round about us who are quietly listening into the discussion the discussion within the church about the relationship between law and grace. 
We need to be clear on this because as Paul wrote to the Corinthians, if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? We need to be clear about law and grace. God first demonstrates sovereign, unmerited grace to deliver the helpless who cry to him. Only then does he impart his holy law to those who are so delivered. If we're not clear on what our own history teaches us, if we don't see our own history as the golden platter on which God has served up this mountain of mercy and grace, if we don't see that, then his law simply won't move us. It won't animate us. It won't direct our Christian living as it should. We'll just keep on walking in the dark, keep on stumbling in the dark, keep on walking down the broad way, following the crowds, following the lost culture, following the social trends, and no one will ever be the wiser. We'll just blend right in with our unsaved neighbors who understand neither law nor grace. Beloved, if we love the Lord our God, if we've come to revel in his mighty deeds of deliverance down through the ages, deeds culminating in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, then how is it that so many professing Christians think and act no differently than the nations around us? Dear ones, I want this to be imprinted on your minds today. Your biblically informed Christian life is your neighbor's wake-up call. Live differently. Live as God directs us to live. You are the light of the world. You are. Jesus said so. You are the light of the world. So the grace behind us, the love within us, and the law before us all belong together because God put them together here on the pages of Deuteronomy. Our grateful walk in God's law is to be a light to the nations round about. Those nations who will say, in the words of verses 6 to 8, Surely this nation is a great and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has God so near to it as is the Lord our God whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? So that's what the obedience of the church among the nations was meant to produce. Nations more like ourselves, in love with God. Nations in love with God, discipled and trained to serve him, to glorify and enjoy him forever.
That's God's purpose. That was God's purpose with Israel, set as it was among the nations. It's God's purpose in sending the church out among the nations today. But what does subsequent Old Testament history say? It says in Joshua 24, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua and had known all the deeds of the Lord which he had done for Israel. Those were the few early days, the glory days in the land of promise. They were days of clear remembrance. But what happens if we let it happen is that forgetfulness of our own history sets in and with that forgetfulness, a spiritual coldness and with it a spiritual blindness And of those three and a half subsequent centuries of governance under the judges of Israel, it was said in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. When there is no king, everyone imagines himself to be king. Everyone imagines himself to be a law to himself. It's called personal autonomy. And it's the essence of the secular humanism now canceling 20 centuries of accrued Western culture and learning. If I am a law to myself, then why not? Why not? No king in Israel. And when in time God sends a king to Israel, in the person of Saul, son of Kish the Benjamite, does that solve the problem of Israel's lawlessness? For that matter, does even King David, who was a man after God's own heart, Does King David solve the problem of lawlessness? Let's see. I mean, even beyond David's own flaws and foibles and shortcomings. David fathered a dynasty featuring such notable rascals as Ahaz, Manasseh, Amon, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin. We certainly remember the good Davidic kings as well. Over the years, there were Asa, Jehoshaphat, Uzziah, Hezekiah, Josiah, and a few others. But the historical trend isn't upward toward the winning of the nations to the Lord and his Christ. The historical trend in Israel and then Judah was rather downward toward exile and extermination. 
With every passing generation, Israel looks less and less distinct from the nations. Less and less holy. More and more like the nations round about, minus those nations' political and military strength. Israel grows forgetful of her own history, forgetful of her true and rightful king. And so she becomes cold. She becomes useless. She becomes ultimately a laughingstock. A laughingstock among the nations. The Lord sends Israel prophet after prophet to call her back to those good old ways of the law. Prophets, men who, according to the later lines of Hebrews chapter 11, by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women, received back their dead by resurrection. And others were tortured, not accepting their release in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted, they were put to death with the sword, they went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy. And what's the impact on Israel's national character and mission? What's the impact of centuries, of God sending these bold but maligned and mistreated prophets to call Israel back to the law? Did their preaching, did their suffering for the sake of righteousness constitute Israel a more effective kingdom of priests, a more holy nation? What Gentile nations round about were drawn to the brightness of her rising as she learned lovingly to keep God's holy law. The story of the Old Testament is, in a sense, the story of Gentile nations being drawn near to Israel, all right. But they're drawn near as the rod of God's holy vengeance. His wrath. Time after time, God draws near them and draws those nations near to Israel to punish her. The exceptions to that rule among the Gentiles of the Old Testament, and there were a few, like Rahab of Jericho, Naaman the Syrian, the Ninevites for a brief season, even Nebuchadnezzar himself There were those exceptions among the Gentiles, but these exceptions confessed faith in Israel's God, not for Israel's godly national example, but for God's own clearly demonstrated power 
alone. God was working not through Israel, but despite Israel among the nations. The poor example of our fathers in the faith added nothing to the convincing of the Gentiles. But when the unassisted God bears his holy arm in the sight of the nations, those nations are convinced. So here's the bottom line. Despite the high and holy calling that we see here in Deuteronomy 4, throughout her subsequent history, Israel did not love and obey her own Savior and King. She did not. Nations did not, therefore, come to her light, nor kings to the brightness of her rising. Isaiah sums up Israel's yet unfinished history in the memorable words of his 59th chapter. Isaiah writes there, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, neither is his ear so dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. In the light of Deuteronomy 4, what we have in the rest of the Old Testament is mission failure. Mission failure. Israel botches the job of simple, faithful obedience to her Savior and Lord. Botches the job of being a light to the nations round about. But does Israel's disobedience in the sight of the nations thwart his saving purpose among those nations? After 14 and a half verses describing Israel's failure to be a light to the nations, in this 59th chapter of Isaiah, we read beginning at verse 15. Now the Lord saw, and it was displeasing in his sight, that there was no justice. And he saw that there was no man and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation to him and his righteousness upheld him. And he put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. To the coastlands, he will make recompense. The action of God, you see. So they will fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the spirit of the Lord drives and a redeemer will come to Zion 
and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, declares the Lord. In terms, then, of this fourth chapter of Deuteronomy, Israel, in fact, failed to love and so failed to serve the Lord our God. She failed to be the light of the world. But it's not as though the word of God had failed. What we could not do, what we would not do, the Lord himself accomplished on our behalf. His own outstretched arm accomplished our salvation. And beloved, this really is the gospel that our salvation is of the Lord. That in the fullness of time, God sent his own son, a kinsman redeemer, to purchase elect sinners out of our slavery to sin and its corruption. He kept the law that we didn't keep, couldn't keep, wouldn't keep. He did it. A redeemer came to Zion, and he did it. What a story this is. And the deeper you dig into this story, the more marvelous it seems. Jesus Christ, the beloved son and heir of the Father, king of Israel, friend of sinners, pays upon the cross the full ransom price for the life of every helpless sinner that his father gave him before the world was. It's not to an obedient church, after all, but to an obedient Savior and substitute, an obedient Son and Redeemer, that the nations must be drawn. Not first to the church, but to Christ. Moses said to the nation assembled there on the plains of Moab, And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I am teaching you to perform in order that you may live and go in and take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. But with their subsequent devil-may-care autonomy in the sight of the nations round about, the Lord clearly was not well-pleased. And now let's fast forward through 14 dismal centuries of compromise and failure. Fast forward from the time of Moses, 1400 years, 1500 perhaps. We now stand upon the plains, not upon the plains of Moab. We stand upon a high mountain miles to the north of there where three young men behold the unmasked glory of the Word made flesh, glorious of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And while the eldest of those three men starts spouting off about building three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, at that moment, the Scripture tells us a bright cloud overshadowed them. 
And behold, a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Amen. Listen to him. Inasmuch as our love grows cold and fails, our deeds also fail. And as go our deeds, so goes our effectiveness as witness bearers among the nations around us. Then seeing that there was no man, astonished that there was no one to intercede, his own arm brought salvation to him and his righteousness upheld him. Hallelujah. What a kinsman redeemer we have. What a king. What a savior. What a resounding triumph of deliverance is ours. In Christ Jesus our Lord. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father. What can we say to these things? We know our sins. We know our failures. You've given us in your great grace your law. And it's a good law. It's holy. It's righteous. It's good. And we have failed to keep it. Failed to give it our due attention. We pray, Heavenly Father, with grateful hearts that you have, by your sovereign grace, sent a Redeemer to buy us back out of our sin, out of our neglect. And you have given us your spirit that we might be enlivened to read it, to heed it, to be illumined by it, to be guided and directed by it. Because our Lord Jesus Christ so guided and directed his life as to keep it. Our reliance is not on your law or we would perish. Our reliance is on him whom you sent to Zion. We thank you for him. We praise you in his name. Amen.